Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Well, relax. As the intro man says, welcome to the Vet Gurus, episode 128, Friday, March the 27th, 2020. And gee, what a crazy time it is, Mark. What a crazy time it is. And it is wonderful, absolutely wonderful to hear your voice, as our listeners will soon realise. Mark has been away to the deep south, and we're not talking about Louisiana, we're talking about the Antarctic and um, he missed a lot of the happenings with all the coronavirus what frenzy. Is it, I just I leave you in charge for like three weeks, <laughs> and I come back, and the whole planet has gone nuts. It has been crazy, but um, I'll tell you what, I was so excited to see your name pop up there in the chat window here, Mark. That as as you know, I I knocked over my coffee, and it went everywhere. So we had to delay our recording um, for a few minutes while I, one, changed my pants and tried to um, ice up my crutch and um, get another coffee. So I have another coffee going and away we go. So, yes, it's been it's been, it's been been crazy, hasn't it? So um, the interesting thing, Mark, and obviously you've been away and out of internet access, which we will chat about shortly about your travails and, and adventures um, in, a, in the Antarctic and why you went there. Um, it's probably going to be part one of part two, considering I think we'll have a little bit to chat about with this. Um, while it's been happening, yeah, it's been um, quite interesting here, Mark. So, yes, um, I think we'll just sort of um, roll with the punches here and, and um, go with the flow and um, do what we usually do. But the interesting thing, which what I was going to comment on, is looking at I get a weekly statistics report, and I think I forward them to you, and the last week or two our listenership has skyrocketed by um, several hundreds of more people listening every week, and I think it's because everybody's – isolated <laughs> and self-isolated and they're thinking what the hell do i do now i've, I've binge watched all my netflix movies and and um, sessions and now what do i do so let's listen to brendan and mark and uh, we can have a little bit of insanity in the sane insane world and um, we can hopefully help you relax a bit and laugh a bit and we've got a couple of interesting news items that will help as well so, guess what? I think I just set off something in the background there. Um, one of Are you my sitting um, on, the, on the TV remote control. No, it was. You know how I've got a um, bit of a connected home here, Mark, and I think it must have been one of the not not the Apple word, the S word, um, the um, Amazon word. Um, I must have said something that activated it and um, it was talking to me in the background. But we'll try and ignore that and um, we'll kick on here, Mark. So I think what I want to do is um, I've got a bit of a bittersweet little news item here, Mark, and I'll take this as the first news item, and that is the coronavirus pandemic triggers a reduction in global air pollution. <laughs> so... But I'm trying I, to look at the positive. There are always people on this planet who will see the pluses in anything, isn't there? 
And these days I try to be that person, um, whereas in the past I'd be the the negative Nelly or the negative Nigel. Um, yes, so this is a, a report from Mother Nature Network, as usual, one of our favourite um news um, sources there, Mark. As the coronavirus pandemic takes hold and triggers lockdowns in major urban centres, researchers studying air pollution data have recorded significant improvements in air quality levels, says the report. These are quite fascinating times, says Francois Jumin, director of the Hugo Observatory in France, and who said that According to the WHO, around 91% of the world population lives in areas where air quality is above the acceptable limits. And this article talks about the dramatic shifts above certain countries, including Italy and China. And they have a great graphic there, Mark, a little, um, a little, um, well, it may even be um, a satellite image there, Mark, of the air quality, um, the nitrogen dioxide density over China between January the 1st and the 20th and, and between 10th and the 25th of February. And it's an amazing, amazing decrease in the, um, in the nitrogen levels as the industry shut down and lots of people died. Um, so, um, so you've always got to look at the positives of these things, Mark. And maybe, maybe, although I'm not too hopeful, maybe something like this pandemic will make everybody stop and think about... The important things in life, which includes life, and um, think about all the other things that we all chat about, and we always chat about climate change and trying to save the planet and um, looking after each other, Mark. But um, it's quite a fascinating little article, and we will link to it at vetgurus.com. And, I did um, have one question for you about it, Brendan. There was yeah. a paragraph in the article, and, you know, we once travelled together to Venice, and... Um, there's we a paragraph did. in the article which talks about um, how much cleaner the water was, uh, the water is in um, Venice as a result of the lockdown. Did you have any thoughts about that? Yes. Well, I think one of the that's, – that's an amazing segue there, Matt, because I did have a client come in about a month ago who – is a native Italian person who now um, has emigrated to Australia and lives in Australia now, and she goes back to Italy at least once or twice a year to visit her family. And we were having a little bit of a chat about Italy, and I was um, telling her some of our little adventures in Venice, and um, she was saying that um, they were hoping that they would ban cruise ships completely from entering Venice because she said that, that, that definitely once the cruise ships enter, those big cruise ships that carry, you know, several thousand up to five or 6,000 people, the water level, um, they can literally see the water level go up by several centimetres, if not um, higher, when the cruise ship comes into dock, Mark. So I think part of that is they're not getting all those cruise ships in and, and the visitors are decreasing. And yes, the water quality has cleared because of that, which um, which makes sense. And I remember I remember when we were wandering around Venice, Mark, and um, I, I asked you a couple of times, I said, I haven't seen any any poop in the waterways yet and you sort of didn't say anything did you because I think you spotted a few floaty bits um while we were there I definitely didn't want to go for a swim <laughs> no neither did I neither did I um yes so 
I don't know whether that's a um, it's a silver lining, so to speak, in the atmosphere, <laughs> Mark, um, that the coronavirus pandemic is triggering a reduction in global air pollution. But it's amazingly how how um, fragile this little planet of ours is, Mark. So that's my first news story. What have you got? Well, my story is um, about, well, it's sort of the twin edges of the sword, the, the planet parts of the planet have not been fragile. They've been frozen for 50,000 years or something. Um, and the, uh, you know, as a consequence of climate change, the permafrost is melting throughout Siberia. And and funnily enough, there's a bunch of fossil ivory hunters who now spend their time searching around the molten mud peat bogs of uh, northern Russia, northeastern Russia, and uh, and they have been turning up some very interesting things, Brendan. Um, and one of them is this uh, horned lark. Um, the unusual bird carcass was discovered in permafrost near the village of Belayagora. Um, and fortunately, the ivory hunters um, did provide the specimen, the Ice Age specimen, um, to the Swedish Museum of Natural History, um, they initially, when they found it, thought it was just a couple of days old because it was so well-preserved. Um, but it turns out on um, review that it's a 46,000-year-old bird, um, a precursor to current um, subspecies, um, and that uh, that the nature of its death uh, must have allowed dirt and mud to deposit gradually around it so that the ground was relatively stable and the bird's carcass was preserved frozen in a state of, um, you know, very similar to the state it was in at the time of its demise. Um, so it, it's um, like you, uh, um, there's a good thing that's come out of a really bad thing. Your story told that and this is another one and the hornbark from the Pleistocene era isn't the only frozen animal discovered in the these um various Siberian sites scientists have also found remains of mammoths of course they've made the news um some of the uh extinct woolly rhinoceros and even an 18,000 year old frozen puppy um so geez it's an um there's a, a wealth of information to be had from these things um, and it it was a remarkably well preserved specimen, wasn't it, Mark? Although in the pictures that I can see in that that article, we can only really see its um, back end and its feet there, Mark, up to its um, and some feathers there. But yeah, it's amazing considering the the age of that bird that um, it was frozen beautifully there. And I know we're going to talk a little bit about ice. <laughs> in the next uh, in this episode and the next one with your trip mark um so yeah no nah, interesting interesting article um i'd i'd like to see have you seen the picture of that 18,000 year old frozen puppy no i have not neither have i it's something we might have to chase up and well, see if we can well, find it yep good okay Next one, Mark. I'm going to jump on to, I love this article, and I think we may have hinted or, or mentioned this one 
in a previous podcast, and this is about pa- Pablo Escobar, the famous drug lord, and his rogue hippos, which are taken over Colombia. And for those of you who don't know the story here of Pablo, he was the, the king of cocaine um, who was killed by police in 1993, and his, his cartel was, well, I think it was the biggest cartel, wasn't it, in Bogota? Um, and it was at its peak, it was bringing in $60 million I think US a day during its peak and he had this amazing mansion which you would build considering you're pulling in that sort of amount of drug money and he decided he wanted to start his own his own private zoo and a collection of exotic animals which included giraffes and ostriches and elephants and, and hippopotamuses and following his death the government decided to try and relocate most of the exotic animals and they didn't end up relocating the hippos and you can imagine why there's probably several you know the first reason i consider is they're, they're buggers to try and move and, and sedate and do anything with and they can be very very nasty animals um initially he illegally imported one bull so one male and time male and three females and today there are some estimates saying there's more than 80 of them living in at least four lakes in the area and moving, spreading marked to nearby rivers, and they've been sighted up to 155 miles away. And the concerns now, um, according to researchers, is how what the impact they're having on the ecosystems there. And um, the article goes into fair bit of detail there but they've they've found basically that the hippos bring lots of nutrients and organic material from the surrounding landscape into the water and they're effectively fertilizing all the bacteria and algae increasing the products product well they're stuffing up the waters let's just let's just not um not um let's just put it in um Brendan turns. They're stuffing up the, the lakes and the waters there, Mark. Um, and this was a study published in the journal Ecology, and they estimate that the research uh, that the hippo population will continue to grow, and they, don't, they still don't know what quite quite what quite what to do with them. And um, there's a quote. I'm just trying to scroll down and find this quote there, Mark. Um, the locals don't know what to do with it. Um, do with these hippos. And at one stage, where are we? They they said they castrated one. Where's that little um, paragraph there, Mark? See if you can find it. Um, uh, I just oh, there we go. Um, the government doesn't know what to do. Um, it will be controversial regardless of what the government do. And a quote from one local person was, they already castrated one and there are people saying, oh, and why, why do you have to castrate them? Just let them be. Castrate the politicians. <laughs> um, so, so, yes, um, I, I think I it's like, problematic. That quote was from Carlos Valderrama, who's a vet. Um, yes. and uh, But I was more interested in the... Um, the following quote from a young girl who told a local newspaper, my father bought one home once. I called him <laughs> Luna because he was very sweet. Yes, I call you Looney. <laughs> um, so, and the other difficulty is they don't want to um, export them back to um, the native region because they're worried about introducing um, exotic diseases or or bacteria, viruses, etc. cetera. Um, so, yeah. I think the bottom line is they're going to have to catch them up and or cull them, Mark. Um, if I can't it's see 50. any other way. They look bloody healthy in those photos, though, Brendan. 
they do they're they're loving it and 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 i think one as i mentioned in the article the reason why they're loving it so much it's like um it's it's hippo heaven um it's the eternal wet season there's no dry season in columbia that's that's right they absolutely love it yeah and um as much cocaine as you can get your um little little hippo schnoz into mark as well (laughs) Well, the other thing that was interesting about that article was that they kill, hippos kill, of course, 500 people a year in Africa. They're one of the most dangerous animals, but no one yet in Colombia has um, ran foul of them, even though apparently people are collecting the young and taking them home. Um, I think it's just a matter of time before the popularity of the local population of hippos suddenly becomes less. Exactly. Now, our last news article, Mark, is a follow-up on a, um, it's a embarrassing. previous this is embarrassing, article, Brendan. and it's and it's also um, we've had a few people contact us about this, so we do. I just want to start by it. saying that um, <laughs> we are useless prats, and we don't know everything. Sometimes we don't know anything, and certainly on that spectrum of for most topics, we're closer to the don't know anything than don't. We know don't everything. know nothing. <laughs> so. Um, several weeks ago, we talked about, in an article, we talked about a veterinary charity which um, uh, provided veterinary services to uh, homeless people who had pets. Um, and we said, oh, wouldn't that be a great idea if it happened in our country? And, uh, you know, demonstrating our uh, ignorance. Um, pets in the Park is an Australian-grown veterinary charity helping to offer veterinary services to homeless Uh, people and their pets and it is now active in multiple cities across Australia and uh, in more than one city it operates in more than one suburb. It was started by a wonderful veterinarian Dr Mark Westman in Sydney nearly 10 years ago which shows how out of date we are. Mark has since been helped by other volunteer veterinarians and veterinary nurses over the years. Um, It is uh, according to our researcher just a fantastic service, um, and uh, and yeah, uh, it's it's quite possible that uh, this service in Australia is the inspiration for the uh, United States examples that uh, we were talking about in our. Oh, I'm story. sure it is, Mark. I'm sure it is, and we um, we missed it completely. <laughs> and it um, has several. It, so it operates in several locations in. New South Wales, um, Sydney region, also in Victoria, in the Melbourne region here, and two other spots: one one in Brisbane, in Queensland, uh, which is northern um, north northern Australia, and the ACT uh, ACT, the Australian Capital Territory in Canberra. So um, yeah, and their website will have a link to the website petsinthepark.org.au, and um, thank you. For all of you who called us out on this one and said, you silly gits, um, you should know about it. And, yes, you're correct, we should have known about it. Um, yes, but, um, yeah. But I'm we, fascinated we... by the fact that um, that this constant effort we've made to appear like we know what we're talking about seems to have taken effect. People actually thought we shouldn't know about that before we opened our big mouths and talked about it. Um, anyway. They've seen through us, Mark. <laughs> They've seen through us. Yes. So let's jump on to our, our main story, which is which is you, Mark. It's your trip <laughs> to the Antarctic. And as I mentioned at the start of this episode, it will be part one 
of part two because I think we're going to talk about why and how you got there and how you managed to get back and have you been quarantined, etc. And I do note that you do sound a little bit, a little bit nasally there, Mark. So I, I, I'm, I'm glad I've we're tele commuting with this and that I've I'm at least two meters away from you as this happens. But you can chat about that as well. And then I think in part two, which will be next week, we will talk about all the amazing things you did and saw of especially all those animals you saw down in the Antarctic, Mark. So, yeah, so why did you decide to go there, I suppose, is my first question. Well, Kate, How did it all start? You know, you know that where we've got, um, you know, a bit of a travel bug and, and there are certain places in the world that we would love to go. Obviously, all of them put on hold for the moment. But um, we've been speaking to a friend of ours, Andre, um, and a couple of travel agents, and um, and we've been sort of making a plan for next year or the year after to get down to um, the Antarctic Peninsula, and also um, we're keen to see the um, uh, South Georgia Island, and um, maybe even go through the Falklands. Um, and about a month ago, we were contacted by our travel agent and, and uh, there were a large number of cancellations, unsurprisingly, um, for one of the trips. Um, and uh, and our, our travel agent said, if you want to do this, this is an unbeatable uh, deal to do it. Now's the time to do it because we have been worried that if we leave it much longer, Brendan, the whole bloody place will melt and we won't see any of the amazing things that we could see. Um, but um, the, the stars aligned. We'd had some time scheduled to have time off work and this uh, trip came up. And so I always have, you know, my philosophy, if there's a way to find a, a way to say no to something um, and not do it and be inactive and inert and a bit of a, a, a um, wannabe, I'm always there. Um, but this time we said, you know what, let's just bite the bullet and go. And so we did. It took yes. about a week of organisation to get everything set. And I remember that-, that week very clearly, Mark, and that we spoke several times and I think we we recorded a couple of the episodes over the last couple of weeks, uh, re- pre-recorded them and um, Gee, you were in a bit of a flap, a bit of a tiz, weren't you, Mark? And it I was, was trying frantic. to calm you down. And you I did, said, you did calm you, me down. Once you're on the plane, you'll be right. Um, <laughs> well, famous last words, hey? Um, famous. So, yes. So what was the – so I'm um, just outlined as the, the, the actual logistics of the trip. So what – you know, how long – where were the flights to and yes. from? Um, and – and what about the boat? And what about what, what what the whole aim of the trip was when you were down in the Antarctic? How long were you supposedly there for? Yep, we um the the there are a number of um, tour operators who have a number of ships who uh, the, the sort of port they focus on is Ushuaia in southern Argentina. Um, so we had to fly there, um, and and from there then they head out. The flights the because it was short notice, there's no direct flight between um, uh, between um, Buenos Aires or, or Swire and Australia. So you have to do a roundabout trip one way or another. So on the way over, we flew United to San Francisco. We had a short stay there. We flew then to Houston um, and had another slightly longer stay. Um, then we flew from Houston to Buenos Aires 
and had a relatively short stay before getting on. Oh, and a drive. There's about an hour drive between the international airport and the domestic airport in Buenos Aires. Um, and we got on the plane and flew to Ushuaia. It was about 57 hours from the time we left the door here in Newcastle. Oh, my goodness. So that was so no no actual stopover where you actually no. slept. So that 50-plus hours of actually flight tra- and transit time. Yep. That is amazing. So you must have been pretty wrecked by the time you got to the um, – and you had a, you did have a couple of days then before yes, the boat took off from there. we did. We had two hours, uh, two days in Oswaya. Well, the, the good thing about the trip was on, usually international trips I don't sleep that well, um, but I had a couple of decent sleeps over this one, so I sort of wasn't too uh, frazzled by the end of it. And, um, and Oswaya is a destination – in its own, it's the gateway to uh, large parts of Patagonia, the Tierra del Fuego National Park. Um, there's heaps of stuff to do there, and it's picturesque, mate. It's just a beautiful place. Um, but we did only have two days to foot it around the Swire before we got on the boat um, and then started the journey. Um, and the boat was wonderful, uh, I've got to say. Um, it was 140, uh, 140 passengers, and um, there were, I think there were 60, 50, 50 odd crew. By the time they have guides and, uh, you know, um, the, the, uh, the galley crew, the cleaning crew, the, you know, all the people that support the trip. So there was a, it was a decent size ship, and our room was. I was expecting to get into something about the size of the closet I'm in at the moment, um, but um, it was actually a fairly comfortable-sized room, and um, and so yeah, it was it was um, it was pretty nice. We were, had two days at sea, um, and uh, as you, I don't know, do you know how I go with seasickness? Not good is the answer. Um, uh, I'm absolutely terrible with that. Yes. I did have you can get these. Um, uh, um, what's the hyacin scopolamine yes. patches? Yes. Um, and so we had some of those, and I did whack one on for the first uh, sea leg. It was two days for us to get to the Falkland Islands, um, and didn't miss a beat. So I didn't have them after that, and I will send you, Brendan, some footage of you know those um on some of the channels the the um uh, company whose name I shan't mention. Um, their their tele, private television, cable television channels. They have um, the fishing shows from the far north Atlantic, and you see these, you know, the ships that. Yes. Out of this, that's what it was really genuinely like. Uh, the boat, I don't think I'd cope. The, the bridge where I was standing when I took the footage I'll send to you was seven stories above the the um, the deck. And at one point, the whole front of the boat is out of the water at the top of a wave, and then we go down about a 12-metre wave to plough into the bottom of the wave. The whole front of the boat goes underwater, and the next wave is above the the um, the bridge I'm standing in. Um, it was ridiculous. But so don't... were you worried you'd die? <laughs> <laughs> at several points I was genuinely concerned for my life um, and the life of the other 102, nearly 200 um, 
people. And the crew weren't particularly no, fine. So they, 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 they said it was fine. <laughs> Apparently, I, I, one thing I did notice was that um, this boat, um, oh, ship, you, you, they're not meant to call what well, I got into trouble for calling it a boat. Um, this ship and many of the other ships uh, have Russian captains. There seems to be a, I don't know whether everyone in um, the old Soviet Union worked on a boat and then once the world's become a freer and more open place, they all got jobs on every you know, tourist-style boat in the world. Um, but um, the Russian captain just, like, was completely calm and didn't bat an eyelid and inspired me to um, relax a little bit. So, so yeah, the, the crew was fine. Um, yes. They, they, so, I must admit the, um, the, the attendance at uh, the mess hall that night was markedly down on the usual numbers. Yes, and you did mention that there was a reasonable number of guests um, travelling there. What sort of countries were they from? Were there many other Australians? How many from uh, pretty international sort of? Or, yeah, or was it predominantly several? There was about, um, I think the t- there was there was a good number of Australians. I think the total number might have been more than 10%, you know, 16 or 18 Australians. Um, but then... Um, British, American, uh, South African. There was a surprising number. The, the company we went with is um, is a Dutch company, and uh, there was a large number of um, uh, people from Europe uh, who obviously had um, hooked up with the trip. The other thing about the trip was that um, usually these trips have uh, a general purpose and a specific purpose, um, and so there's usually a small cohort of travellers who have paid for um, um, and demonstrated training in an additional experience. So they might do kayaking or um, or uh, some form of um, mountain climbing. Um, our crew were um, divers, were um, ice polar divers. So there was a, a crew mainly from... Um, Europe, who uh, jumped in the water every time that we pulled up in a place. Um, so that was pretty cool. Ah, um, so the average age wasn't like your typical cruise ship where it was 75 or 78, um, uh, where you just sat and played bingo every day? Or, or there, was, there, was one, um, there was one traveller who was 85. Um, she was the oldest. Um, I would say there was a bunch of... Uh, probably a couple of dozen sort of um, in their 20s or 30s, um, you know, a backpacker, single uh, person, predominantly women um, uh, travelling. Um, and then the vast majority of the remainder were probably, you know, immediate post-retiree sort of age, maybe early 60s I would have estimated to be the average um, a lot of people, obviously, you know, there was a trip of a lifetime. They'd they'd uh, um, waited until they had the time off work to be able to do it. Yes. So you spent, and we'll talk about the time down there in part two. So, well, um, the trip back, Mark, the trip back. So presumably, <laughs> because I didn't hear from you, you had very little, if any, we had connection no with internet. the outside world. Which I've got to say was initially a stress, but turned out to be a bit of a pleasure just not switching on to each of the seven or eight social media networks I canvas frequently. And um, and not having to do that was like a real pleasure. But we didn't know anything, Brendan. We didn't know what was going on in the world. We'd 
you know, we knew we got the the um, the trip largely because of the coronavirus, so we were aware it was around, and um, and there was some talk on uh, from the uh, the um, crew that uh, you know things are changing in the world, um, but when we got back to Aswire, um we pulled in on, I can't remember which day it was, but um, uh, we were meant to pull in one night and then the next morning we'd get off the boat at 8.30 and we had a couple of days planned to, you know, do the things in Oswire. But um, yes. the port authorities said um, that they um, that they wouldn't let anyone off the boat until a couple of hours before their flight. Um, so we were quarantined on the boat we were there for an extra couple of days and the port company who had planned to discharge the engorged contents of the uh of the ship including the ballast um that we were um had to had to keep feeding us and looking after us for a few more days um and then the exciting bit was that we we would carefully um shunted off the, the boat down the gangway straight into a bus um, a bus that was um, guarded front and back by some of the local Aswire police, um, and we had a police escort with sirens and everything that took us the, uh, the the twelve minutes or so it takes to drive from the port round to the airport. Um, yes. Then we were sh- we were temperature tested and then shuffled. And and I, you can tell my voice, I am a bit croaky and sniffly. I do have a rhinovirus. I don't have coronavirus. Um, but they, they took our temperature and gave us the once over. They did that several times through the, the airport at Aswire um, before they shuffled us on the plane and, um, and, uh, um, and left the problem to someone else to deal with. And then we got to Buenos Aires. We'd been talking to our travel agent from the time that we were quarantined at port. We could make contact with her then. Um, and she was being told that, um, yep, our flight back is all fine, the flight back is all fine. But, of course, when we got to Buenos Aires, um, we found out that not only was our flight back not fine, um, it was completely cancelled and the office of the air company um, that ran the planes was shut and um, they weren't planning to do anything in Buenos Aires for two months. So Uh. we had a couple of hours of frantic uh, communication um, by which time we got a flight. Um, the last two seats on the last Air New Zealand flight from Buenos Aires to uh, Sydney via Auckland. And, um, and yeah, we, um, we hopped on the plane and, and uh, made the trip home. We saw a few of our co-travellers uh, in Buenos Aires and in New Zealand, surprisingly enough. Um, that's how few planes were flying out of Buenos Aires, even um, people who... We're headed to other parts of the world, had to go via New Zealand. So all in yes. all, that part of the trip was really, really surprisingly exciting. But st- stressful or exciting or a bit of both? I um, look, I think uh, it was a little bit stressful um, and there was talk um, at the airport that if we couldn't get out, we might we might have been stuck there for a couple of months. Um, but I suppose... You know, we weren't about to be, um, you know, there was nothing life-threatening us at that time. We are all healthy and um, and uh, everyone was trying to help us. So if we were locked into that position, um, I'm sure we uh, could get out. I reckon we could get out. 
Oh, I survived. Yes. Or live in Buenos Aires. We may have become, you know, um, uh, um, Argentinian. Naturalised. <laughs> yes, yes. So when you got back to Australia, tell me about um, any sort of requirements and, and um, screening when you got back in um, at the international border, Mark, as far as, you know, things were starting to really heat up here as far as the border control and um, as they have worldwide. So what did you have to do and, and what's what's ongoing at the moment? Well, there wasn't much – there literally wasn't much traffic going on at the airport, I think. Uh, that was the first thing I noticed. Um, and everyone who was at the airport, you know that sort of general clatter you have, bang, bags banging, people talking? There was none of that. Everyone was, was really – it sort of almost had like a respectful tone to it. Um, the uh, border security people from Australia were exceptionally um, helpful. They uh, directed uh, particular uh, people from particular destinations or with any sign of health issues, and they directed them off separately and they had to deal with them separately. Um, they, they did have the electronic stuff switched off, so we had to talk to a... Um, you know, to an actual person as we came through customs. Um, and they gave us an awful lot of information about um, making, you know, we had to sign um, declarations, we had to commit to the quarantine, um, and we had to, uh, um, what was the other? they gave us a whole bunch of information about what to do if something went wrong or, and for those of our listeners who are over in other countries, Mark, so that the quarantine self-isolation is, what, 14 days, was it? That 14 days, yep. We've got to stay in our house and not go out for 14 days. Well, that was an adventure, wasn't it, Mark? Um, <laughs> yes. And we haven't even spoken about the animals and what you saw down there and from the from the very few photos you sent me mark g they look uh, it looks like you had an amazing time once you're down in the ice region and i think considering we're going for 37 minutes we will leave our listeners on a cliffhanger here mark <laughs> and we will sign off here and we will cover what you actually did down in the antarctic next episode so stay healthy everybody and take care we'll talk to you next week Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time. Hold up. 